0: I'm excited about starting our study of Esther. The book of Esther is often considered a a challenging book, and for a number of reasons. The primary reason is because the name of God is never read in the book, and that is certainly a a shocking aspect of the characteristic of, of this book. Uh, But if we understand what God is trying to accomplish with this book, as well as its background and historical context, I think we'll be able to see why God's name is lacking from its pages and help us understand ultimately what God wants us to see with this book. Uh, One of Charles Dickens famous uh, books begins with, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. I'd submit to you the book of Esther is beginning by telling us it's the worst of times and it's the worst of times. This is not a good time at all for the people of God. You have to remember that our our setting as we begin to think about this background of what ultimately this book wants us to show is is that about a hundred years prior, God had allowed for the Babylonian Empire to invade, destroy the temple in Jerusalem and allow God's people to be carried off into captivity. Uh, and it's been about 50 years prior to uh, the setting of this book that Persia has overthrown uh, the Babylonian Empire and set up its empire. The very first verse of chapter 1 of the book of Esther tells you already the the uh, breadth of this empire that it reaches from Asia to Africa this is a powerful empire the the Persian empire is one of great magnificence i am Uh, excited that our timing for the Wednesday night study will work out to uh, get to talk a lot more about the Persian Empire and what all that means in regards to the impact of this text that we'll look at this Wednesday night. But when you realize the, the, the setting and the situation that you have this as a great time of difficulty for the people of God, they're in Persia and the reason that they are in Persia is because they've abandoned the Lord that's how they got there is is they have disobeyed god to such a degree that god has left those people and has now placed them in captivity I have even more interest to consider is at this point about 50 years earlier you had God through Cyrus allowing people to leave Persia and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild and yet these are the people who did not do that in fact when you look at the the account in scriptures about the numbers of those who went back it is very few who went back to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city most stayed in Persia and And that is the situation that this text is ultimately dealing with. And it is a book that is written about an exiled people who have no hope and they are separated from the promised land. It's a time of darkness where the people are hoping for light, but they're wondering what ultimately God is going to do. More notably than that, to to cast the shadow of darkness over the time frame in which this book takes place is that we are told there in verse 1 that it's now the days of Ahasuerus. We don't know that name very well historically because this is the Hebrew name, but we have great confidence that the Greek name of this ruler is Xerxes. Xerxes. And he is quite notable in history under Persian rule. Uh, Very well known for his power, his strength, for his temper, for his fighting with the Greeks. There's all kinds of history that you are able to go back and check out and see about Xerxes and the kind of individual he has. But more importantly, the empire that he ran and the power and the splendor and the might of all that exists. So these are really the important settings that are given to us about what is ultimately happening at this point. We have to recognize that the text is trying to signal to us it's a time of darkness there doesn't seem to be any hope whatsoever and what are are the people of God doing living in a Persian empire with a terrible ruler like Xerxes who is over the land what is God going to do with these people and I think that then becomes a very important approach to us as we begin to look at this book. There are a lot of bad ways to read this book and how we come and approach this book is important. I think one of the struggles that people have and what causes problems in understanding the book is when you read the book of Esther, it is hard to find a hero that you say, okay, do everything that they did and we'll see as we go through the book there's something deplorable about everybody and their situations or what's happening to them or the choices that they're making and that sometimes becomes a struggle for people is that you see a lot of bad decisions being made but I hope by now in the way that we have approached our studies of the Old Testament that we realize and that's not why those figures were ever recorded in the Scriptures is that you're not supposed to look at the life of David and say, be like David. And you go, well, wait a minute. Um, uh, there are some things about him that maybe that's not supposed to be uh, modeled. And that's the way it is with all the people that we read about. Is These are not perfect people. These are people that we can relate to who are filled with sins and making bad decisions. And the lens that we're supposed to look at is not, okay, be like them or not like this person, but rather, what is God doing? In these circumstances, what is God doing as he deals with these failed people? And more importantly, what is God teaching about himself in particular? To think about the lens of this book, a book that does not name God's name at all through this. I think one of the important questions that is ultimately being asked is God is God going to do something for his people who are ultimately in the grip of the empire during these dark times. That is really the question that looms over the text. Is God going to do something for these people who have clearly abandoned God and failed God? Is God going to intervene? Is God going to act even in the darkest of times? And I think that's a, an important aspect because what that's going to lead to is a lot of teaching moments for us as we go through the book. As we consider, can the people of God hold on to hope? Can they be faithful to God even in a hostile environment as they live in the empire? It's, it's going to be a, a lot of fun to enjoy what God does in this book. That's our, our setting. That's our lens that we need to look at this book, the way the book of Esther begins uh, is, is awfully staggering in a lot of ways. Let's take a look at some of the things that you see happening because when the first thing that you are given really in these first nine verses is an emphasis on just how powerful and how rich and how glorious this empire is that Xerxes rules over we are told after describing uh, the the breadth of this kingdom as it goes from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, that we are told even in in verse 3 that he is going to show his riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And verse 3 tells us it's to his officials, to the armies of Persia and Media, to the no and the governors of those provinces who are under him. So for essentially 180 days... You have an open house. Come and see the glory of my kingdom. See what I have established. Look at my power. Look at my riches. Look at all that I have accomplished. Six months, you just come and check it all out. All the officials, all the rulers, all the important people are allowed to enjoy that. And then you will notice in in verse Five that we are told after those hundred and eighty days are done then the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel both great and small a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace and you just scan your eyes through verse six notice the descriptions that are given there we've got Couches of gold and couches of silver. It is wealth. It is opulence. And here again is the king saying, I want everybody who is here in Susa for a whole week to see look how great my kingdom is. Look how rich it is. Look how powerful it is. See my splendor. See my glory. And that's what's being displayed here in these first nine verses is just putting forward the power of the empire and the wealth of the empire, the strength of the empire. And as it's doing that, you're going to notice in this first chapter, there is an awful lot of irony. And there's so much irony, at least for me, because I'm kind of a humorous, sarcastic person. It's pretty funny. A lot of the irony that is laid out in this first chapter, it already cues us into that in verse 8, where here is the royal decree. Here is the edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. I'm going to make an edict. And the edict is not everybody drink up. The edict is you don't have to drink. There's no compulsion. Here's my edict. You just do whatever you like. It's a very strange edict that's that's given here. It's, edicts are typically to compel you to do something. Here is my law. Here is my rule. And you're already getting a reversal of that as the king's edict is this. There are no rules. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. You'll see how that plays in into the irony as this unfolds with this picture of this powerful kingdom so the the first image to put it firmly into your mind see the power of the empire see the power of this king because what happens next really throws that into confusion we are told in verse 10 that it's the seventh day of this feasting that is going on this open house in Susa for all of the inhabitants to be able to come in and enjoy and see with this with this edict that there is no compulsion and we're told that as his heart is merry with wine in verse 10 he he commands then in verse 11 for queen basti to come before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the prince's her beauty for she was lovely to look at so here is the command bring my queen in i want everybody to see the the beauty of my queen and notice verse 12 but queen vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs and at this the king was enraged and his anger burned within him There's always been speculation about what exactly was he commanding her for her to be willing to refuse the king. And you would have to imagine that the refusal indicates something terribly inappropriate to be worth enraging the king and being punished. You did not tell kings no, and you certainly don't tell Xerxes no. And to then be willing to say, I'm not going to come in there. Clearly the command is not, hey, would you come in here and just say hi to everybody? There's a whole lot more involved in what he is asking for her to do. So she is willing to absolutely refuse and enrage the king in this. In fact, he wants you to consider that in doing this, in enraging the king like this, the irony is already beginning because here is the great king of Persia who we noticed in verses 3 and 4 whose whole intent for six months is to show everybody look how great I am look how powerful I am look how rich I am and yet his wife's unwilling to listen to him that's what's being set up here's great Xerxes who's trying to command his armies and lead this great empire and influence them and show them his might and Queen Vashti goes nah, <laughs> I'm not coming in there and that's how the text wants it to set up. That's what it wants us to see in considering what is going on in this, in this great empire that is before us. And so this leads then to the king's radical response. And this is humorous and also ironic because in verse 13, you will notice the king gathers all of his wise men who know all the laws and know all the rules. And in verse 14, he basically asks, as he gathers them all together. Verse 15, what should be done to the queen because she hasn't come? <laughs> Guys, I don't know what to do. She just isn't, isn't coming. What am I supposed to do about that? And here again, great Xerxes, great ruler, gather all my officials. What should I do? And I want you to notice their response. Verse 16 <clears throat> In the said in the presence of the king of the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Masti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath aplenty. (laughs) She has ruined everything. (laughs) In essence, it's saying the whole empire is going to spiral out of control because Queen Vasti has said no to King Xerxes. The whole thing is set up in that framework. What she has done is just so harmful to the empire that everybody's going to find out about this, which is certainly doubtful in my mind. But this is uh, some overreaction being laid out to us that, you know, this is just going to cause every woman to just completely hold every man in contempt. And this is just going to overthrow everything that we ever have done in this empire. So notice what the response is. Verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree uh, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And this advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mebukkin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. (laughs) I mean, you just can't help but laugh and shake your head and go, wow. (laughs) So we have as our solution some interesting choices made. Vashti refuses to come before the king, so our solution will be she will never be allowed to come before the the king. That's how we will solve that is we'll never let her be a part of this again. And she loses her royal position and then all the empire will be able to know about the choice that she's made. And therefore, when we do this this way, we will make all the women of the empire respect their husbands. And I'll just say, You're supposed to see a laughable empire at this point. You are supposed to see that if you have to write a law to get your wife to respect you, you have problems. (laughs) You know, you think that's going to go really well. Okay, here's what we're going to do to get all the wives to honor their husbands. We'll make a law that says they must honor their husbands because surely... They'll be very honorable when you do that. It's just laughable what is being shown to us. And what is particularly ironic and particularly laughable about this is the decree is for all the men of the empire to do the very thing that the king cannot do. The king can't even get Vashti to come in and at his command. So how are we going to solve that? Well, all the other men will be able to do it. So we'll make a law. We'll make a rule. We'll make a decree uh, about that. Now, what I think is important to consider in how this is all being played out, I think is fascinating how this book wants you to see Persia, how it wants you to see the power of this kingdom and how it wants you to see Xerxes in particular, because What this is already setting up for us in the first chapter is that the empire wants you to believe how it is so important and it is so powerful and it is so mighty. And yet what this is doing is kind of pulling back the curtain and saying it's really not it's really not yeah it looks really grand it looks like it's got all kinds of power and strength and wealth and might and all of that but it's really not here is a concern that all the officials say this one woman's action could just bring down the whole empire what are we going to do and the whole point is to see it's not what it claims to be in fact One of the reasons why uh, scholars challenge the historicity of this book and often call it a myth uh, or a story is because of its presentation of Xerxes and its presentation of the Persian Empire. I mean. What we know of the Persian Empire and we know of Xerxes is power upon power upon power. There is a magnificent empire. It is absolutely stunning. The history that we have of that. And so scholars say, well, there's no way this jives. So this is just a fanciful story. But that is the whole point is that this is what God wants you to see is that this is an empire of smoke and mirrors which by the way Persian Empire still here we've got the country of Iran but we don't have a Persian Empire from India to Africa The whole point that is being given to us is that this empire is a bunch of hot air. It is not what it claims to be. It's unable to accomplish what it thinks it can. And the bigger irony here is that everyone is afraid of one woman's disobedience to the king and what that could mean for the collapse of the whole empire. And that's what God is trying to show you is that God wants you to see That this kingdom, in fact, not only this kingdom, but all the kingdoms of the earth are laughable and can be brought to their end. That's the whole idea of what this is. Because what happens is the world wants you to see the empire is so important, it's so magnificent, it's so powerful. And God pulls back the curtain and says, You don't need to fear the empire. You don't need to put your hope in the empire. It is a laughable empire. It is a weak empire. And this already begins in its first step in giving hope to the exiles. Yeah, it looks strong and it makes a lot of noise and it acts like it's a big deal. But at the end of the day, it's really not. And I think this is important as we talk about messages for us. Is that this is a message that God is trying to always proclaim about nations and kingdoms and empires and rulers and leaders. Is that all nations, including ours, is absolutely nothing before God. Absolutely nothing before him. And we look at the Persian Empire and we read the history and we go, oh, wow, Persian Empire. Wow, that looks mean. And Xerxes is perhaps the most notable name of all of the rulers of the Persian Empire and what they were able to do and what they were accomplish. And God is always trying to say, yeah, you've got that great empire. Nah, no big deal. It reminds you a little bit of uh, when we were in Genesis chapter 10. and You might remember that you have in that scene that you have peoples from all over the place who want to build a tower and they want to make it very high so that they can make a great name for themselves. And the text is very careful in its wording because it says that God came down to see you you want to make yourself so powerful and you think you are so much and look at what you can do and look at what you can build and God has to come down and look and go oh that's so cute what you've done down there isn't that really nice let me confuse your languages and now you can't do that anymore And that's what's happening here with the Persian Empire. Oh, look at the first nine verses. Look at its power. Look at this wealth. We've got gold couches. We've got an empire from edge to edge. We rule the nations and we rule the peoples. And here is God going, oh, isn't that really cute? You know, you can't even get your wife to do what you say. You think you're so powerful. (laughs) You're you're laughable. Which is what God has always said. We, We got to look at this text this morning. And now frame it in terms of what we're seeing in the book of Esther, where here is the the Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire against the Lord and his anointed. Let us tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. We will not do what God wants. We have power. We have strength. We have might. We can do what we want. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And the Lord ridicules them. That's what's being presented in this first chapter. It's it's not myth, but God's trying to show us something. That the empire thinks it's so great. So important. So mighty. So able to do whatever it wants. And God is saying, I'm just laughing at this. I'm laughing at this arrogance. I'm laughing that you think that you are able to do whatever you want and that you can stand against the purposes of God. It cannot happen. You might remember that in scriptures, leaders like to have this problem of thinking that they are so powerful and and so mighty. You have Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, where we're told, here's the things that happened to Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be my royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? Look at me. I can do a lot of powerful stuff. I am rich and I have glory and look at my kingdom and look at my might. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and He gives them to anyone He wants. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, look at me. You know, the reason I'm king is because I'm so smart. And the reason my empire is so vast is because I'm doing such a good job. Look at me as he's walking on his roof and just examining it all. And here's God going, no, 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 no. You're not in charge because of you. You're not in charge because of your power and your wealth and any of that. And your empire does not have any of that because of you, Nebuchadnezzar. And he just basically snaps his fingers and takes it all away from him. And goes, you think it was you? Watch this. Boom, gone. You were in charge? Not anymore. And he's left with eating grass like cattle for seven periods of time. You only can imagine what that looked like. There's the... The king in the backyard again. I? my, I? What are we going to do with that? This is what God's always doing. The kingdoms of earth are laughable. They think they're so powerful. And they're nothing. They're laughable before God. In fact, notice when Nebuchadnezzar learned it, here's what he said. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. Oh, we're something. Well, we've got important kings and important rulers and important dictators and important nations and important kingdoms. And we're something, we're something, we're something. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar finally learned. Nothing before God. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And no one can hold back his hand and say to him, what have you done? (laughs) This is a powerful picture. The kingdoms of the earth are nothing to God. And here is Nebuchadnezzar finally learning that and saying, God does as he pleases. He is in charge over these things. And no one can say to him, What are you doing? And no one can say to him, I think you're doing something wrong here. He is in charge over all of that. What you see ultimately beginning as this book sets up is not only paving the way for the uh, the rise of Esther, which of course it's doing. But it's already communicating important messages for these people who are living in these dark times under the empire of the rule of Xerxes. And the first thing is you are able to live courageously because your hope is not in the empire or its leaders. It doesn't matter. You know, Xerxes and his kingdom, boy, they think they're something, they think they're powerful. Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, they think they're something and they think they're powerful. Could we probably just fill in the blank and say, every nation and its present leader always think they are so important. They always do. That's the whole nature of it all. They all think they're something. And God is trying to pull the curtain back and say, you don't put your hope in the leaders and you don't put your hope in the empire We can live courageously when we see that God determines the time for leaders and rulers and nations and empires. He's in charge of that. That is what makes chapter one laughable is as much as Xerxes thinks he has all of this power that he can wield. God's trying to show you and say, actually, he doesn't. He absolutely doesn't. That ultimately every empire And every nation is a house of cards that will fall by the breath of God. Every nation in the present time thinks they are the most important and most powerful nation. Assyria did back in the 700s BC. And then they were overthrown by the Babylonian Empire. And they were the most important and most powerful nation. And they were going to be it. And we already read a little bit about how that went for Nebuchadnezzar. And then they were overthrown by the Persian Empire, which is what we're reading about in the book of Esther. And they are the most important empire. And they are great. And they will never be destroyed until they were destroyed by the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great. And he had the greatest empire. And he would never be stopped, except he was. And then you had the Roman Empire, and surely the greatest of all empires. And they would never be touched or ever be destroyed, except they were too. And how long does history have to go on before we see that every nation and every kingdom and every empire is a house of cards? And it will not last. And it will eventually fall, just like all the others. And it only exists by the sheer determination of God himself. And when God is done with a nation and when he's done with the kingdom, then that kingdom or nation will go. And it'll be next, next one up, and next one up, and next one up, and next one up. That's all what history is about, is rise and fall of nations, kingdoms, and civilizations over and over again. I'm looking forward to hoping one day, want to go to Rome and see the great things they built over 2,000 years ago and go, and that great empire It's no longer a great empire. One day, if the Lord allows thousands of years to go, this country will be another couple of pages in a history book that some kid will read about how this was here for a time. And then it went on and civilizations rose and civilizations fell and nations rise and nations fall and leaders rise and leaders fall. And the whole point to see is you don't put your hope in the empire, You put your hope in God. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is not here. Our hope is in God. Our hope is not in leaders. Our citizenship is to God and to God alone. And that is what this first chapter wants to communicate to these people. Is yeah, you're living in the throes of the Persian Empire. And we're going to read bad things happening to them. But don't fret. God's in control. And he will bring the rise and fall of leaders and nations as he sees fit. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I suppose, Lord, that it is the pride of all generations who have always thought that their generation is the most important and that where they lived was the most important. God, I pray that we would always have our eyes on you and your kingdom and that we would always see that you allow nations to exist and leaders to rule simply by your will and lord we are grateful that we do not have to be concerned or caught up with the affairs of the world but that we can look to you and that you show us the folly the foolishness and the arrogance of putting our hope in this world or in this nation or in any people. Lord, we pray for forgiveness for the times that we lose sight that you rule over all things. And Lord, we thank you for a text like this that we can look at this evening that reminds us that you look down upon this world, that you are high and exalted and mighty far above all of it and that the things that we do in rebellion to you do not stop your plans and purposes and are simply laughable before you and all that. Lord, we pray that we would be far more devoted to you, that we would see ourselves as citizens of your kingdom and that we would follow and serve you so strongly in the days ahead. Lord, we live in difficult times with a virus and with with such uh, difficulty and dismay and, and hatred in our culture. Lord, we pray that we could be the people who would show you to the world, that we would be able to be the ones to stand up and show light and to show everybody that what the world needs now is you and you alone. So, Lord, help us to say it. And help us to live courageously during these times to put our hope and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to sing a song now in just a moment that is encouragement to you to think about where you stand before God and to put your hope in the Lord Jesus completely and to see the power of his kingdom that you can belong to, to not have your hope tied to this world. And thank God we do not have to have our hope tied to this world, but we are looking forward to something far better and far greater. If we can help you in any way, won't you let us know how you can respond to the invitation? Won't you come while we stand